Today I'll be preaching from 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. I invite you to give your attention as I read God's word. Speaking of David, it says, Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war and, was accept and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Jonathan loved David, loved him as his own soul. This passage provides an outstanding example of Christian friendship, what I'll call today brotherly love. Jonathan and David shared a striking friendship. It begins here, but it then stretches out through many years of hardship. Jonathan and David loved each other and were committed to each other through thick and thin. And it was a friendship that lasted throughout all of their lives lasted until Jonathan was killed in battle. And even beyond that, David honored Jonathan's family, showing a commitment and a love towards his friend Jonathan. It is a friendship that is marked by character and commitment. It is shaped by a covenant, and it points forward to Christ. Such love provides us a wonderful opportunity to think deeply about the Christian brotherly love that we share as the body of Christ. We are bound together by the love that God has showed to us. We are bound together as well by a common commitment to Christ. We are bound by love because God has loved us. For a hook that you can hang the, uh, this sermon on, I've just taken from 1 John. If God has loved us, let us love one another. My outline today is going to, uh, it's going to follow four different C's, and I like to take note when I can alliterate. I don't often do that, but I got four C's today. I'm going to start off with giving you a caution about this love, then a contrast of love, character of love and a covenant of love. And I do need to start with a caution because in this passage it says, as I've noted, that Jonathan loved David as his own soul and David returned this love. In fact, when Jonathan died in battle, David lamented over him with words that are so striking that 
given our modern understandings and uh, uh, ideas about love, you may be made uncomfortable by words like this. Listen to what, what David says. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. And this needs some explanation. And even as I have suggested, even a caution about what we understand is being said here. I say caution because some modern commentators try to make this relationship out to be a homosexual love relationship. See, they say Jonathan and David loved each other with a love that was even greater than a love between a man and a woman. They, had, they were involved romantically, can't you see? But such an interpretation falls prey to a couple of mistakes. The first mistake is to take the meaning of one word and to press it into every occurrence where you find it happening. I can illustrate this with the word of love. I'm going to profess my love in the statements which I make next. And everybody here is going to know that love means different things. And so I will tell you that I love my wife, Vicki. And I'll profess my love as well for the Pittsburgh Penguins hockey team. And I'll tell you that I love ice cream. Now, does love mean the same thing in every circumstance? Well, obviously not. We've used the word love and we understand it in its context. And to imply a homosexual relationship between Jonathan and David is implying something that doesn't rise from the context. But not only that, it takes modern sensibilities and reads it back into a situation, which is also an interpretive mistake. The assumption here is that two men cannot be just friends. That's the modern interpretation. Two men cannot be just friends. That they must also have a romantic sexual relationship if they're being described this way. But such an assumption fails to grasp the depth and the power of a biblical brotherly love. Brotherly love that can be described as friendship here. A love that can and does stand on its own without any sexual overtones. Last week over lunch, Jacob and Abby and uh, Stephen and our family were discussing what was coming next. And uh, Jacob called attention to something that he wrote, read from C.S. Lewis's book, the four loves. It's a striking, uh, a striking quote that I'll read for you here. It has to do with this brotherly type of love that 
Lewis calls friendship, and a sexual romantic love, which he calls eros. And listen to the distinction that Lewis makes. Those who cannot conceive of friendship as a substantive love, in other words, a, a love that stands on its own, but only as a disguise or an elaboration of eros, betray the fact that they have never had a friend. See, if you confuse those two, if you conflate them and mix them up, you miss out on something that does and can stand on its own. A deep and lasting love that has no sexual connotation at all. And it is a biblical category. It is a, 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 a biblical idea. And so as we go on in this text, I want you to understand this caution that the love that is spoken of here is that deeply biblical brotherly love that Jonathan shares with David. So we go on in the text, the very first thing that we read sets up an, a very striking contrast. We're going to call it the contrast between the love that Jonathan has and the, uh, the relationship that Saul has with David. We notice in verse 1, it says that this happened as soon as David was done speaking with Saul. And as soon as that happened, the soul, the soul of Jonathan was knit together with the soul of David, and he loved him as his own soul. You can't help but notice the contrast that's being made here between Jonathan and Saul. It makes Jonathan's response just kind of shine out brightly against the backdrop of the way in which Saul treats David. Saul had first come to know David as the one who was referred to him as skilled with harp and music because Saul was troubled by an evil spirit. And so David would come and he would play and he would sing and the Lord would use him to, uh, to soothe Saul's conscience and that evil spirit. But then David steps forward as a volunteer to fight Goliath and Saul comes to look at David in a different light. He had been useful before in his musical talents, and now he's useful as a soldier. So when David appears before Saul after winning this great victory over Goliath and over the Philistine, uh, the Philistine army, Saul comes to David and, uh, and addresses him. And there's some glaring omissions in what Saul says. You might expect him to come to David and say, Congratulations, praise God for the deliverance that you've done. Thank you for stepping forward to, to deliver us. But there's none of that. Instead, he seems to be calculating how he can leverage this industrious young man to his further purposes, which he did. Saul took him that day, it says, took him into his service. And he was not even allowed to go home to his father's house. 
You might remember that Saul had cautioned the children of Israel in this way. This is what your kings will do. They will take your young men for their service, for their purposes. And there's a certain right to that, that the national interests would be promoted and be served. But uh, this is just part and parcel of who Saul is. And we've seen this over and over again that he is more interested in his reputation and his authority, and he uses David to, to take advantage of his abilities. His attitude was self-serving. But not Jonathan. Jonathan loved him. Even in, in the face of what his father does with David. Jonathan loves him and he expresses that love towards him. Which leads us to consider the character of this biblical love, this brotherly affection. To understand the character of this love, you need to understand a few things about the character of Jonathan. From a worldly perspective, it would have been very unlikely for Jonathan to have anything to do with David. This is a setup that uh, you could make a, a, a TV miniseries about this, right? And it would be full of intrigue because here comes the upstart David. And he comes and he has this great victory over the, over the giant Goliath and all of the people are praising him. But all along over here is the crown prince Jonathan. The one who is to succeed his father, Saul. And in the TV miniseries, there'd be all of this intrigue that was back and forth as Jonathan tries to undermine this uh, young whippersnapper so that his position would not, be, would not be forfeited by David, this new hero. But there is none of that in Jonathan. Jonathan genuinely loves David without any sense of taking advantage of him to further his own career or his position. It's described as their souls being knit together. And I hope that someday that you experience this type of friendship. I hope it's something that uh, husbands and wives share together. There's, there are ways in which the different types of biblical love do overlap. This knitting together of hearts, though, is something that can happen in a variety of relationships. And I hope that you experience it in your marriages. I hope you experience it with, uh, with a true friend a man or a, a woman that would be a friend to you as, as male or female. And this is what we have in the character of Jonathan's love. Now, we don't know if, if Jonathan knew of David's anointing yet. It's unclear. It was in a private setting. It was at least known among David's family. And Jonathan does eventually come to know that this is God's anointed king. 
whatever he knew, though, at this point, we can say that Jonathan's actions and his intentions are marked by a pure and godly love. And you don't have to, uh, you don't have any hint of envy that David is now bursting onto the scenes in a way that takes attention away from Jonathan. You don't see Jonathan provoked to anger or jealousy because of this. He doesn't seek his own at the cost of David. He doesn't think ill of David. He doesn't speak ill of David. He doesn't rejoice when David goes through hard times. I hope you hear, as I've, as I've described these things, I hope you hear words that I've used that come from 1 Corinthians 13. They are nothing less than an application of this great chapter on biblical love applied to the relationship of Jonathan and David. And we often read 1 Corinthians 13 at weddings, and, and we may have we may rightly apply that to the relationship of a, of a man and a woman in, the, in a relationship of husband and wife. 1 Corinthians 13 applies to all believers. It applies to every relationship, to every brother and sister in Christ. And that's what we see in Jonathan and David, that love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the brotherly love that Jonathan shared with David. And in this passage that, that Paul writes, it's, it's spoken of mostly in the negative. This is what biblical love forbids. We can add in a number of positive things that would be the opposite of that. In fact, in a little bit, I'll encourage you in that direction and your relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ to be on the guard against those negatives, but to put on the positives that are implied by them. But there's a greater and even more powerful positive that is implied by this. The encounter or our encounter with Jonathan earlier has shown that Jonathan is oriented towards the glory of the God of Israel. And so the positive that we can see here is that, is that David is an agent of that glory of God. And so the expression that Jonathan brings of his love towards David is connected with his his sense of serving and following the God of Israel. We saw this earlier. Remember when Jonathan was grieved and burdened by the sad state of Israel when the Philistines had, had before invaded Israel. And he was grieved by the shame that it brought upon the Lord. So he asked the Lord to direct him and he went out to fight the Philistines. 
And he was zealous for God's name and glory. And so now he, that same zeal is expressed towards David. David came and fought against the one who was defiling the name and the glory of God. And Jonathan said, Amen. And as we saw last week, David had prophesied that there would be a recognition that the Lord does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And by faith, Jonathan is identifying with that, and he is testifying to that in the honor that he gave to David. And he rejoiced to testify that by David's victory, that all the earth would know that there is a God in Israel. And out of this character, Jonathan loved David with a pure brotherly love. And so he covenanted with him. He made a promise that was a binding pledge that would guide and guard and direct that love that he had for David. That's what verse 3 says, that Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. The two made a covenant, a pledge to be this band of brothers. And I want you to think of how significant this was. Think about how significant it was, first of all, uh, in the original context. It was significant for David to have this bond of love covenanted by Jonathan. Jonathan publicly praised and acknowledged David. He gave him the robe that he was wearing right then. He took it off of himself to put it onto David. He gave him his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt. These were rich gifts, and not only rich gifts, they were symbols of his authority, of leadership, of his position in the nation of Israel. They were significant of those things. And he publicly gave them to David. In the eyes of all of the watching army, in the eyes of the nation, he was saying, this is one that I love. And he publicly covenanted together with David, a covenant to pledge that bond in the years to come. And Jonathan accepted and acknowledged David. In the context of where he had just been, David's literal brother had, had, had scorned him, had scolded him, had told him to, to go on back home to your sheep. And the rest of the army could have done the same. They, they might have looked at David as, as a usurper and said, no, Jonathan is our man. Remember that there's already been a turning of the hearts of the armies away from Saul to Jonathan. And they may have said, no, Jonathan is our leader. They loved Jonathan and they would follow him. And they do as Jonathan leads them to acknowledge David as a leader of the army. So for Jonathan to bind himself to David's cause, 
And to honor him in this way was an endorsement that was crucial for David. It was crucial for the Lord's anointed. And it's striking that, that God would orchestrate things so that his anointed would be assisted. Would be assisted by the prince himself. The outcome of this is told by verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. The chapters following then tell how valuable this bond of love would prove to be. I've, always, I've already hinted at this. We'll find that David does begin to advance in leadership and in honor, and it wasn't easy. He faced opposition. Opposition not just from the Philistines and from enemies external, but he faced opposition from Saul, the king of Israel, who did become jealous. And Jonathan stood by him even in this, even when it put him at odds with his father. And in this way, the covenant that Jonathan made with David foreshadows the covenant that God would later make with David. We sang about this in Psalm 89. Glad how Stephen called your attention to this. It calls David the Lord's anointed. And we've we will continue to see the significance of this king that the Lord is raising up. God had raised up David as a promise of the coming Jesus. And it says in Psalm 89 that the Lord made a covenant with David. And what was that covenant? My faithful love to my servant. My faithful love. And Jonathan foreshadows that faithful love. And it's a, a, a picture of the love that God would have with, with, the, uh, with David as his king. And in this way, Jonathan also shows us that grand picture of redemption and shows us how he was aligning himself with the promised redeemer, with the covenant of God. He was forsaking everything else so that he could follow the will of God and the Redeemer that he would rise, raise up. This happens all throughout Scripture. We see it with Moses. We see it with David. We see it with Jesus. That there is an alignment with the covenant of God, with the promise of God, with the Savior that he would send. And Jonathan does that. And I can't help but think of the, a New Testament picture of this. That as the, uh, the Gospels go forward, they tell of the announcement of the coming of Jesus through John the Baptist, who was like a, a, a flame burning in the darkness and was gathering disciples to himself. But here comes Jesus And what does John say? 
He must increase, but I must decrease. And much like that, without jealousy, Jonathan, by his actions, indicates he must increase. And knowing that the Lord had anointed David, he says, I must decrease. And this is a great and a glorious thing. This is God's purpose. And Jonathan was content to align himself with that and to bind himself by a covenant of love with David. In conclusion, we often see Christ in David, but today I hope you see Christ in Jonathan too. Matthew Henry has said that our Lord Jesus has thus shown his love to us, that he stripped his, himself to clothe us, emptied himself to enrich us, Nay, Jesus did more than Jonathan. He clothed himself with our rags, where Jonathan did not put on David's. Jonathan does teach us of Jesus, doesn't he? He teaches us of a biblical love. A love that, as Jesus will say, lays down his life for his brother. A love that considers the interests of others greater than our own interests. Now, you may be familiar with the different words that the Bible uses for love. You may be familiar with that word agape, the type of love that is sacrificing of self. It is most particularly applied to the love of God for sinners of Jesus for us, and that he lays down his life for us. That's what 1 John 3.16 says, isn't it? This is how we know what love is. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And Jesus' love for us is unique and that he does save us by his love and by his act of his death on the cross. But we can also say that Jesus' love then becomes a model of Christian love for us. And this too comes from 1 John 3.16. I stopped in the middle of that verse. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And Jonathan did just that. He loved David out of that character of devotion to the glory of God. His soul was knit together with the Lord's anointed, and he covenanted with him. He laid down his possessions and his reputation and his position and his family to protect and to promote David because of the brotherly love that he had for him. From this passage, I'd have you to think deeply about that bond of love that we have with God, first of all, but then the bond of love that 
binds us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. There is no love between brothers and sisters unless there is first that love of God for us that sets us free from sin. And there is no love unless Jesus loves us first. We respond in that saving love by loving him and then necessarily loving one another. We are bound together as brothers and sisters in Christ, necessarily. And John makes this point loud and clear that if you do not love your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you do not love God either. They can't go together. And so think of this passage and be watchful against envy and jealousy. I'll have more to say on this in the next passage because Saul is the epitome of jealousy and envy. And it destroys him. Be watchful against envy. Be watchful against resentment. Such emotions spring from self-love and self-promotion. Also from this passage, I'd have you think deeply about that bond of love that is then expressed in self-sacrificing agape type of love, but also this brotherly love that does stand on its own. It is flavored, no doubt, by the, our understandings of agape, but it can stand on its own. It is a love that is pure and honest. That, that means that two men and two women can genuinely be just friends. But even as I say that, this rich biblical love is more than just friends, isn't it? It's not sexual, it's, but it's more than just friends. There is a devoted commitment to that other individual and their well-being. There is a devoted sacrificing of self-interest so that that other individual can be all that they are meant to be. There is a rejoicing when the other one succeeds, even when they surpass you. And so from this passage, I would urge you to commit to this type of brotherly love with those that are sitting right next to you today. That you would look on them as your brother. That you would look on them as your sister in Christ. That you would commit beforehand to believe the best of them. To nip in the bud any thoughts that spring from jealousy. That you would express that love by speaking the best of them by publicly praising them and promoting them to their, so that their gifts would be used to the fullest. 
I would urge you to practice your love by praying for your fellow members of the church. Pray for them by name. And pray for yourself that you may bear all things, believe all things, endure all things, hope all things. And above all, I pray that as you read the Gospels, that you would read and meditate on how Christ has loved you. And so let us love one another. My brothers and sisters, I use that term deliberately. My brothers and sisters, my friends, I love you. May we love one another. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a glorious gift you have given to us that you no longer look on us as servants, but you look on us as friends. We thank you, O oh God, that by the love of Christ that has been given for us, that you enable us to put to death all of those selfish interests, to put to death the self-seeking envy that so easily entangles us. And Lord, even in praying this way, we acknowledge that we fall into this uh, often, weekly, daily. We think about those that are closest to us in ways that are self-serving. God, forgive us for being so miserly with our love. Instead, O oh Lord, I pray that we would love as we have been loved. And that we would, would come to value the close brotherly friendships that are modeled here by Jonathan, that foreshadow Jesus Christ that are spoken of by Paul. And, O oh God, may we be known by the love that we have for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, bound together by love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's turn to Psalm 133. I promise that I did not know that David Whitla is preaching on this passage tonight. God providentially brings together his word, doesn't he? What a blessing it is when we dwell together in unity. Let's sing this. Let's pray this. Let's praise God for this. Psalm 133a. Please stand to sing. 